Uh, today, we are going to embark on part two of a message that we began last week called Aftermath. I say this because it's not really a series, series that usually lasts across three or four weeks. Um, this is more of a single message that was too big to cover in one sitting because nobody wants to listen to me for an hour and a half. Maybe some of you, uh, Lindsay has to all the time. So uh, ask her about how fun that is. Ha, 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 right? Uh, that's called living, right? Okay, um, we'll try that again. This is part two of a message called Aftermath. Uh, it's a single message, too big to cover in one sitting. If you missed the first part, you should check out that. You can find it in various places. Uh, but I want to do something. I want to bring out a verse that we focused on last week, and you'll get the picture of what it was about very quickly. Um, and then we're going to uh, read through Acts chapter one, the first part of that chapter, and uh, then we're going to have a little fun. So you'll, you can get comfy, and uh, we uh, will do a little interaction together, and then we're and talk a little bit of history, and then we'll get back into uh, the text. So a lot to cover this morning, but we'll get through it. Don't worry, I think we'll get through it pretty efficiently. Um, so last week, our conversation was anchored around a single verse, John 20, verse 21. If you're with us, if you weren't, I think this is pretty self-explanatory. Jesus, after the resurrection, comes to the disciples that night and says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so... I am sending you. So without even context, I think that message is pretty loud and clear without a sermon attached to it, without all the other verses attached to it. Jesus shows up to a group of disciples that weren't expecting him, that didn't believe that he had even risen from the grave, if you know the whole story. He shows up, walks through or unlocks the door they had barricaded shut because they were afraid that the Jews that killed Jesus would come after them. And when his body was missing, they thought they were even more suspicious. So they were afraid. They were in hiding. Jesus shows up, comes through the door, says, hey, let's get the small talk out of the way. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, even so, even so, I am sending you. Can we, can we say that together? Can we, can we just say from the, from the, as the Father, can we start there? As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. You are, you know, to put it back into our terms, we are being sent by God in the same way that Jesus was sent by God. Now to bring even more context to that, look at your Bibles if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter one, and let's hear the first 11 verses. And this is right after the resurrection. The disciples still gathered together. Jesus has been preaching this message to them. And if you were here with us last week, we heard how they did not respond initially or even the second or third time he came to them. So Acts chapter one, Luke is gonna give us a little bit of introduction then he's gonna catch up uh, uh, with the story. The former account I made all Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he has presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for, during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And it was during that 40-day period that he basically repeated this message again and again and again, as I was sent, I am sending you. And now verse four, kind of the, the, the last gathering with Jesus and the disciples is recorded. 
Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now there is a special spark that God wants to ignite in our hearts today, your hearts, from this text and what comes after it. And may we be open to receive all that he has for us. But before we dive into more of Acts 1, into more of this, as I am sent, I send you, uh, I want to dig a little bit into history because we like to do that from time to time around here. Uh, so if I were to ask you, because I'm prone to ask you these kind of questions, if I were to ask you to name someone famous from 4,000, 4,000, that's a long time ago, 4,000 years ago, around 2000 BC, could you do that? Now, maybe, maybe not. Maybe some of you are shouting. Hey, I know somebody that was famous 4,000 years ago. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, here he goes again. This is going to be one of those, one of those days, and, and maybe it will be. Uh, but I, I bet if I gave you some options or some choices to select from, you would be able to identify the famous one uh, from, uh, from the list. So uh, we're going to do a little bit multiple choice because those are the best kind of tests, right? You don't have to write in something. You can just pick from an answer, and you've got a pretty good percentage, pretty good chance to get it right. So I know most of y'all don't sound too enthused about this probably, but just play along with me. I'm going to give you three choices. Write this down somewhere that you can check yourself because you're going to grade your own papers and let's be honest in church, right? So, uh, and there's more than one question. So we'll talk about how, you know, how you can pass in a minute. Uh, But three choices. Write down who you think was the famous person from 4,000 years ago. So A, Ketelaomer. I'm not making these names up, by the way. Mamre or C, Abraham. Now, when I was in school, I always picked C when I didn't know the answer because they always said that was the, you know, likely to be the answer. I don't know if that's really a good thing to rely on sometimes, but maybe you should rely on it this time. Now, keep track of your answers because we've got a few more questions to go through. Um, and uh, I know this isn't world history class, but you never know. It's May and that means it's test season. So uh, you shouldn't be too surprised that, that we're having a test in church. Um, let's jump forward a few years uh, to uh, 3,400 years ago, about 1400 BC. Who do you think, or do you know who the famous person was? Reol, Moses, or my favorite, Tutmos. Now, we're almost done. I promise these are real people who lived long ago. I didn't make these things up. Um, so 2,500 years ago, so about 500 BC, can you identify the famous person from these options? A, Daniel, B, Cyrus, C, and this is fun, Mithridath. Now, you should name your next kid Mithridath, or you should change your kid's name to this if, uh, 
Maybe we can try that, honey. I'm, I'm not sure. I better not do that. Okay, so the test is over. And some of y'all missed the test, but that's okay. Um, each answer is worth 33%. So if you miss one, you failed. I'm sorry. Um, but thankfully, this is church, so we have grace, and there may be a curve. But if there isn't, nobody's really going to get too mad at you. Okay, so is it 60 passing now? Okay, yeah, I thought it was 70. Okay, so uh, maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a chance. Okay, so the first answer to the first question, which of those would have been recognized as famous 4,000 years ago? And the answer is Ketelelmer. Anybody pick him? Tammy, oh God, wow, we got a scholar in the house. Um, okay. Okay, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Okay, now maybe you fell for my C trap, and if you did, don't listen to me when I give you advice like that. Um, now, some of y'all are already probably suspicious of the veracity of this test, and if you are, you should have expected that, right? Okay, so don't worry, you still have a chance to pass, I think. So, from the second set of questions, who was famous 25 or 3,400 years ago, and Tutmos would have been the correct answer. So, if you pick somebody else that might be a little bit more familiar, again, maybe there's a catch to all this, right? Okay, so 2,500 years ago, the correct answer would have been Cyrus, Cyrus. So I'm not going to put you on the spot. If you pick some of the, if you got the right answers, good for you. You might get 100. Damn, wow. I, don't, I did not share my notes with her. So um, now I have a hunch. I have a hunch that most of y'all probably picked Abraham, Moses, and Daniel, right? Maybe did anybody, that, that, that's, who, that's who are famous to us, right? Because, because they are more than famous to us. They're legendary, aren't they? They're heroes of our faith, more importantly. Billions of people around the world today do not know who Ketelelmer is or Tutmos or Cyrus, but billions of people in buildings like this and in places like this, they know Abraham, Moses, and Daniel because they are key figures in the story of the Christian faith. But as far as famous in their day... And that's the catch, right? As far as being famous in their day, they were relative nobodies. Now, good on us for knowing, good on you for knowing, because that means you know your Bible. But that's the thing. If not for the Bible, if not for our faith, would these men be recognized today as famous? Not hardly. Because in our day, and it was the same in those days, fame comes with power and wealth and stature and success, but when it comes to Abraham, Moses, and Daniel, outside of their own little familiar bubbles, they were pretty much obscure, unknowns. They were footnotes in other more famous, more powerful, more celebrated people's stories. Abraham, we all know Abraham. He's the father of our faith, right? He is the most, who, who, who else would be considered famous from 4,000 years ago? Well, actually, Abraham was a footnote in a world dominated by a king, a king named Ketelelmer. And if you read Genesis 14, you can find that this king ruled the land of Elam, which is modern day Saudi Arabia and part of the Sumerian empire. And he had a massive jurisdiction 4,000 years ago. Now, most of us have never heard of him. And even if we have ever read Genesis 14, we still don't remember, much less we can't even pronounce his name. Let's be honest. But we know about Abraham. And we know him as a footnote in Abraham's story, not the other way around. Now, if you were to go back 4,000 years ago and you ask people, who's the most famous man in all the land? Nobody would have ever heard of Abraham, save his family. 
But they all would have heard of the mighty king Ketelaomer. Likewise, if you were to go back 3,400 years ago and ask people around the world, who is the most famous of them all? They would have told you from Africa to Asia to parts of the Mediterranean uh, region. Anyone who would have asked that question to, they would have all said, that's easy. The most famous man is the most powerful man, the most recent ruler of the Egyptian empire, Pharaoh Tutmos III. And although the proper name isn't mentioned, we only know about this Pharaoh because he is included in the story of our hero, Moses. The same goes for 2,500 years ago, whereas we celebrate Daniel for his fame and role in the story of our faith, the ancient world would have pointed to Emperor Cyrus, ruler of Persia. All these years later, Nobody in today's world even would know these former great kings' names if not for their intersection with our biblical heroes. 4,3400, 2,500 years ago, kids wanted to grow up to be like Ketelaomer, Tutmos, or Cyrus. They wanted to be the next king, the next ruler, the next emperor. But to us, these mighty men are just footnotes in the story of greater men. And in retrospect, all the fame and glory and legacy is on the shoulders of Abraham, Moses, and David. And we could have went through other parts of the Bible and picked out kings that ruled and other servants that did not have a great position in their day, but have stood the test of time and made a difference in the world that no one could ever have imagined. Now, the point of this exercise was to hopefully bring attention to you and to us today of how different our world is compared to what it could have been like. All because, and I don't, this is, of course, a preacher would say this, but this is really, history defends this. All because the Bible did not remain a separate set of documents in ancient Israel, because it wasn't left to collect dust on bookshelves of antiquity, because it was taken to the ends of the earth. Because the Bible was taken away from the ancient history and out of Israel, because of that, obscure and mostly local heroes of the ancient fallen Israel, they were lifted up and their stories were reframed as building blocks for the Christian faith. It was the first and second century Christians that believed the stories of ancient Israel should be preserved and told along with the gospel because it further proved and validated that God had been working in the world since the very beginning. And Israel was a stepping stone toward the church as his means of redemption for thousands of years. He had been working behind the scenes through people like Abraham, Moses, and Daniel and others. It was third and fourth century Christians that compiled together collections of books, history, prophecies, laws, oracles, and poems. And they brought together the writing to the first Christians and they put them into one single book called the Bible. So all these years later, our entire worldview is framed and formed by the Bible. We see what God was doing in Israel and even more so through the church early on as the foundation for the modern world and more importantly, as the foundation of our faith. But if not for, if not for the persistent passionate proclamation of the first Christians. These stories may have never survived, much less they would not be celebrated. For the first 250 years of the church's existence, they preached Jesus and showed God's plan years in the making to a Roman world that predominantly was antagonistic and oppressive. Literal arenas were built for Christians to be tortured in, and this became a public spectacle 
across the Roman Empire. It was basically a sporting event of its day. Romans would go and pay money to watch Christians be toyed with and tortured until they eventually were not able to outrun or withstand the pursuit of bears and panthers and lions. Yet eventually the gospel spread and spread and spread and became so prevalent, so widespread that nobody could ignore it anymore. And to everyone's surprise and shock and awe, word spread in 312 AD that the Roman Emperor Constantine had become a Christian. And surely enough, in 313 AD, he ordered that persecution against the beleaguered church cease. And for years, for a decade almost, nobody believed that he was actually a Christian. And they didn't know why the oppression had stopped or persecution had stopped, but they could not believe that the emperor had become a Christian. After years of disbelief, letters were sent around to the churches around 325 AD. An olive branch was taken from the emperor to the church leaders. uh, And he desired, he, he told them, I desire to help organize the church into something more. To give it infrastructure, to support and give it resources it never have imagined about. And that year, the Council of Nicaea was organized, where many church leaders gathered, bringing their writings and their stories and their experiences together. And they drafted a creed or a confession that expressed the basic pillars of their faith. And that creed is confessed in churches all around the world. And you've read it and heard it and maybe confessed it yourself. And then, this is the most remarkable, probably untold, this is the most unheard story in all of history. And it should be one of the most famous stories. In 331 AD, Emperor Constantine worked with churches to produce an official, complete Bible, just like the one you hold. A comprehensive collection of 66 inspired books that were agreed upon as canon over the first hundred years or so of the church. They were considered instrumental to the redemption story. And Constantine commissioned that 50 Bibles be produced, bound in leather, and sent to all the churches that had previously passed around copies of letters and stories for uh, 200 years, but finally they would have a complete copy of the story. Can you imagine what it was like for pastors of churches that had formerly been persecuted and oppressed and were in hiding around 330 AD for them to be given a copy of the very first Bible? They maybe had a copy of Isaiah or a copy of John. They maybe had fragments of Genesis and fragments of Luke, but finally they had the whole story. From beginning to a new beginning. Now we are tempted to say from beginning to end, but they didn't see that there was an ending. Yeah, God's word, God's inspiration had ceased. The book was complete. But they saw the New Testament not as the end of the story, but as the beginning of a new story. You see, the New Testament to them, it wasn't ancient history like it was, like it is to us, like the Old Testament may have been. It was very recent to them. It was just a 230, 250 years prior to their own lives. They knew people who were the grandchildren of the people we read about in the New Testament. And it was not lost on them how important those stories were and how it, ha- how it was because of the events in the New Testament that they had their place in history. They knew that the time period from 30 AD to 90 AD, the time period of the New Testament, they knew that that maybe was the most important time period in all of human history. And I don't think that's an overstatement. It was the actions of men and women in that 60 year period that changed the trajectory of history 
Men and women who heard the Great Commission, who were convinced, believers were convinced by Jesus' persistent instruction that his movement was just beginning. If only they would, what's it say? Be his movement and spread his message. It's because of the people that lived and died in those 60 years that we have a Bible. It's why we have a church. It's why that the heroes of this book are not just footnotes in a story of other more powerful secular men. Likewise, their own names, including the name of Jesus. Those stories should have never left the first century. But somehow, somehow, instead of remembering names like Augustus and Tiberius and Nero, instead of remembering Herod and Pilate for what they accomplished in their kingdoms, we remember them, not for the glory of Rome, We remember them and their stories. We remember the Roman Empire and its leaders as mere footnotes and the startup story of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the launch of his church. Isn't that remarkable? That these stories should have never been the most famous of their day. They should have been footnotes to emperors and kings and kingdoms that had so much more power and so much more recognition and so much more fame. But it's because of the actions and sacrifices of the original followers of Jesus that his church, his word, and his movement became a worldwide phenomenon which still exists and is thriving 2,000 years later. It's because of their determination to take this message to the world. You know, as much as Jesus' death and resurrection changed everything, it was the response of his followers in the immediate aftermath of his resurrection that made his story known to everyone, everywhere. Do you see that? Jesus' death and resurrection changed things behind the scenes. But if not for the response of his followers, if not for their making his story known to everyone, everywhere, we would not be here. We wouldn't. At first, they weren't too keen on the whole, as I have been sent, so am I sending you. If you were here with us last week, they thought we'd rather go fishing. And they did do that, right? They went back to their lives before they had ever met Jesus. They left Jerusalem. They went back to Galilee. They went back to what it was like before they knew who Jesus was. But Jesus pursued them and he would not let them shake the calling on their lives. He would not let them ignore his movement, how they were to be his movement. In Acts 1 verse 1, I want you to notice how Luke introduces the next phase, this post-resurrection phase of the ministry of Jesus. He says in the first book, he's referring to the gospel of Luke, which is, you know, reflects to all the gospels, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He says to his uh, patron, Theophilus, in the first account, I showed you all that Jesus began. Now, underline that, highlight that if you haven't before. Began both to do and teach. And then there's a comma The story is not over. That's what Luke's message is. The story isn't over. You may think it's over because he died and he went back to heaven. What else is there to to Jesus' story? Luke would say there is so much more to his story because his movement only was getting started. He was just beginning. This verse tells us he was taken up to a throne in heaven, or the next verse says he was taken up to heaven, but he left his followers with a specific set of commands. And verses six through 11 really repeats those commands that he gave to his disciples. But we we see in verse six that his disciples suggested to him an alternative reality. 
So rather than as I sent you, as I was sent, I send you, rather than being on board for that, they thought, Jesus, can we just fast forward to the end? We know why you came. You came to forgive sins. You came to raise us up. We've received that. We're glad that we are no longer going to go to hell when we die. We're glad that we're going to go to heaven. Can we just fast forward to the end? Because we were there from day one. We've seen it. We've experienced. We love you. Everyone else rejected you. They crucified you. This, this very town crucified you. And the rest of the world, they're never going to believe in you, Jesus. Come on, Peter, James, John, we're your guys. All the ladies that loved you are here. All the other people that followed you, they're here. There's over a hundred of us. Can we just fast forward to the end? Because that sounds like the most you know, ideal and, and the most sensible thing to do, Jesus. Now, had we been there, and I know, you know, hopefully not, but had we been there, we probably would have thought the same thing. We probably would have asked for the same thing because it just made sense. They thought, Jesus, you've forgiven us. You've given us eternal life. What's stopping you from establishing your kingdom right now? And this is so important. Jesus' response to that question, what's stopping you from establishing your kingdom right now? His response to us is you are stopping me. You. Well, no, Jesus, we're ready. We've been saved for years. We are ready for the kingdom. And he says, and you, you misunderstand. Now, not that we somehow determine when it comes, but that he isn't considering what's next until after the church has accomplished its mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as verse eight instructs. Do you see that? What's stopping you, Jesus? You are, because I have commanded and commissioned you to take this story and make it history. Jesus said back in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And, and, and the, the idea of that phrase there isn't just the whole world and then it's over, but the whole plan of God, the time that God has set on this, for this world to exist, the whole age as a testimony to all nations. And then, and then, and then the end will come. Now, this isn't referring to some linear timeline, but rather God has a plan for the world. He has a plan for the nations and he wants to see the church established and navigate the future to influence and build the kingdom of God from within. And that is the mission that we are on. He anointed and appointed these to be his witnesses in the first century, just like he's chosen us to be his witnesses in the 21st century. The angels remark as these men gaze to heaven. In verse 11, why do you stand here gazing? This same Jesus will come again. You have been sent to the world. And the story of Acts is that these disciples went to the world and they were witnesses to what Jesus started, continuing what he started being his movement. Now, in the next section of Acts, we get insight into what I think, what may sound trivial and inside baseball, but I think there's something very edifying for us and I'm glad that it's in this story. So look with me, verses 12 through 17. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem on a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, 
and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So that's the 11 apostles. The, they're, they're all continued. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, there were about 120. So not just the 11 core guys, not just his mom and the ladies, but about 120 people who were devoted, who had come back after the resurrection, who were a part of that original gathering, that original founding church. Peter stood up in their midst and he said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas Iscariot, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And then he quotes some verses that said that was part of prophecy that one of them would fall away. But then in verse 21, he says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what what he's saying is that they wanted to establish a core leadership team that would help organize this movement. And originally there were 12, one fell away. They wanted to fill that position. Now, Jesus didn't tell them to do this, but they wanted to be the most organized in the best position to be able to handle what he was calling them to do. And being smart, and being, and, and being disciplined, they were planning and they wanted to figure out how they could mobilize this movement and they wanted strong leadership in place. So they wanted to fill Judas's position on this council of 12 that Jesus had started. But notice what the requirement is. We must find someone who was there from the beginning, but what is the key thing at the end of verse, 20, end of verse 22? One of these must become a witness to the resurrection. So we need somebody who is a witness to the resurrection. Now, if you were here last week and you know the story, how many of those 11 or anybody, how many of the disciples were at the grave waiting for him to raise? None of them were. So this does not mean somebody who saw him raised from the dead. This means, it's not referring to someone who literally saw Jesus resurrect, but this is about somebody who experienced his resurrection and had overcome their own change. This is about somebody who, like them, may have denied it originally, but when he came back and he showed them his scars and he told them what had went on and why he died and why he was back and what was available to them, they wanted somebody who, like them, had realized he did this to give us eternal life in him. And we need somebody who is a witness, who is a testament to what God has done. Does that make sense? We need somebody who knew Jesus, who watched him, who walked with him like we did. And even though we all ran away when he died and didn't believe that he came back, once he came and proved to us and convinced us and has commissioned us, we need somebody who has experienced his resurrection in their own heart. You know what their motive was or their mindset was? If we are going to convince the world of who Jesus is and what he's done, they had to be living proof of what Jesus could do. And and I think they wanted this to be clear within the leadership team so that it would send a message to the whole congregation, the whole following that this is how we change the world. 
These 12 weren't some selective group frozen in time who would make an impact on their world and only them. Uh, Remember, there were 120 plus people in that upper room. So the point of this is that there were more than 12 being sent. All of them had been sent and commissioned. And while the story might focus on the 12, the mission was not limited to the 12. In fact, some of the people who make the most difference in Acts, or at least as much of the difference, are not listed in these 12. People that may seem like footnotes in the story make a bold impact. Just an example of the followers of Jesus who make a big splash besides the 12. There's a guy later on named Philip. Philip was elected a deacon to serve food at the ministry for the needy in Jerusalem. He becomes an evangelist to an unreached people group. There's a man named Barnabas who was a layperson who literally sold his home and sold his land and donated all the money to the church and eventually becomes the first leader at the first church plant in Antioch, thousands of miles away. And there's a little guy named Paul who at first was an opponent of the church, who joins the church at Antioch, becomes a disciple of Barnabas, and he volunteers for the first mission trip to Turkey and Greece. And eventually he takes the gospel to Rome. And while these face great opposition and while they face great persecution, they never let it phase them or deter them from their mission. You know why? Because they were sent and they would never be unsent. Now flip over to Acts 4, if you will. We could do a whole study on every chapter of Acts. We've done that before. We'll probably do it again. But in Acts 4, we'll look at verse 29. As they face the first intense round of persecution, they are threatened with death. They are flogged with a Roman cat of nine tails. They are wounded and scarred for life. They come together as the church to pray And they don't even know what to pray about. They are so overwhelmed at all the opposition and all the threats. But their prayer is in verse 29. Lord, look on their threats. Now, this this is not them saying, God, would you stop them? They just say, God, would you look on their threats? Because we know that you see what they're doing to us. And we're going to ask you to do with them whatever you can do with them. But we know we can't change their minds unless you do. So look on their threats and ask for us. Look at this, underline this, highlight this, memorize this. As for us, grant to your servants that with all boldness, they, or literally we, might speak your word. And this is the prayer that got them through the persecution in Jerusalem, that got them out of Jerusalem and took the gospel to Samaria, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Rome, and beyond. It's that boldness. It's that boldness that that, that sent the church through the first 250 years of tears and blood that resulted in a Roman revolution, that resulted in the first front-to-back printed Bible, that resulted in a church galvanized to take on the world. And, And let me be clear. Boldness isn't just courage in the face of opposition. Boldness is commitment in the face of distractions. Let me repeat that. Boldness is not just courage in the face of opposition. Boldness is commitment in the face of distractions. Church, it it cannot be overstated that we are as sent as they were. Everything expected out of, us, out of them is expected out of us. 
We are still Jesus' movement. The question is, are we still moving for him? Are we? Without boldness, we probably won't be convinced that we can, much less should. Now, I know we look at our complicated, busy lives and we wonder, how is that possible? I know I preach messages like this and it makes us just think, oh, Justin, I can't. You don't know what kind of life I live. Listen, I know because I make the same excuses, right, that you do. I know all the reasons we give as to why we can't do what they did. We wonder, how is it possible? Well, I mean, thankfully, there's a verse for that. With God, all things are possible, which, again, I'm not just being cute. The question is, is the desire and determination within us? With God, it's possible. But with you, within you, is it even a desire? Let me break this down for you. If you're in the middle of raising a family, you got kids and you got a lot going on, you've got a tremendous mission right in front of you. And I'm not making excuses for you because there's a lot we can do, a lot anybody can do. But if you're in the middle, if you're trying to figure out how to get kids, kids to school, you're trying to get, figure out how to get to work and try to keep your house from burning down because you don't know if you left the snow on or not. If you're in the middle of raising a family, right, your mission is right in front of you. But it's a tremendous mission that God has given you. It's not just a convenient, oh, an excuse to make to God. It's a mission that God has given you. Now, and it might, might you be sent to some specific work? Yes, you might, but you are called every day to pour into your family the gospel values every single day. And the same thing is for you at your job, your classroom, wherever you are sent every day that you may, and you may feel like it, and maybe there is a way for you to be more obedient. But right now you think, hey, I'm, I'm stuck where I'm at. I've got to do what I've got to do. How can I be sent by God where I'm at? And, and this is what Paul told families in Corinth. Brothers and sisters, in whatever condition you were called, there let him or let her remain with God. As in where you are at, as busy as it is, you are still sent by God for some purpose to make a significant impact in somebody's life for his kingdom's gain. It may be your child, your grandchild, it may be your coworker, it may be your boss, or it may be your employees, but you have a mission in front of you. This isn't just for people who don't have a life like the apostles seem like they did. This isn't just for people who may be more flexible. This is for everyone. And brothers and sisters, every one of us, where you are called, there is a mission. But the question is, is there a desire within us? Now, that aside. If you feel like you're spending a little bit too much time on you and not on Jesus, if you would be honest and say there's, a time, there's time on the table that you could utilize for kingdom work, if you're in a flexible place in life, and many people, especially in America, are, then you, and, and again, I'm not just being preachy, but we have an obligation to seek God and pursue his kingdom above all else. We do. Even a family raising kids, working morning to night, let's be honest, there's a lot of extracurricular activities that take away from our otherwise prime kingdom opportunities. Heck, that's not even considering the stuff that keeps us from church, right? Come on, there are so many. We all are in position to give more and serve more and do more, to volunteer, to visit, to adopt, to foster, to organize activities and missions, to go on missions. Every one of us are in position to do more, give more, and serve more. We are. 
yet. So many of us, we'd rather be playing. Right? We'd rather be competing. We'd rather be spending. We'd rather be wasting our lives on lesser things. So here's the message. Here's the, the reality of it. Here's the, what made a difference in the aftermath of the resurrection. The reason why you are here and the reason why somebody else might be in your shoes in the future, the possibility. It's going to take boldness. It will take boldness. And I don't mean, mean boldness in the face of something that scares you. Boldness to stand up to yourself, to the world, to the enemy. Boldness to choose Jesus above all else. Boldness to choose Jesus and his kingdom above all else. It takes boldness. The question is, will we choose this? And I know, Justin, you don't know my story. My wife, my husband, my kids, my family, my work. I, I, I know, I don't, I, that's you and God. That's you and God. But my job as a pastor is to shine this light into my life, into your life, and say, this is not excusable. It's going to take boldness to look in the mirror, to look at the world, to look at the enemy, and choose Jesus, and choose his kingdom above everything else. A few things I think can help you, guide you in your daily decisions. Hear God's word daily, apply it and obey it. Hear God's word daily, read it and ask God, give me something that directs me and sends me, help me apply it, help me obey it. Hear, don't just read it. And, and I could put read, but it's more than read. Ears to hear, hear God's word daily with your families, with your spouse, with those around you. Hear God's word daily. What is God saying to us? Because we are still sent somewhere, somehow, some way to something Hear it, apply it, obey it. Invest in others over self. So always, always, always invest in others over yourself. And maximize every opportunity God gives you and pray for more. When you've done all that, do it again. Hear God's word, invest in others, maximize every opportunity. And a couple more things. Be faithful, be flexible, be fearless, be bold. Be faithful to God and to his word. Be flexible as in it's not just, hey, I got this going on. Be flexible. Be fearless. Be fearless, be willing to take, to, to, to say, I don't know how this is gonna work. I don't know if I can afford this. I can do this, if I can manage this. Be fearless to go for what God has sent you. Be bold, be bold. Here's the thing, following Jesus to choosing Jesus, prioritizing Jesus, deferring to Jesus, defaulting with Jesus at times may make you feel like you're taking a step back in the world. Now hear that clearly. Following Jesus, choosing Jesus, defaulting to Jesus may make you feel like you're taking a step back. You may feel like you're becoming a footnote in other more successful people's stories. But haven't we learned today that years from now when the stories are retold and reframed, things will look upside down than they do now? Isn't that true? Isn't that why we're here today? In the case of ancient history, in the case of Roman history, it'll be the case for this current history in the future. Those that seem on top today will be footnotes in a story that we are currently writing in which we are featured. And to those that are bold, 
those that pour into others and those that pour out for others at home, at work, in the community, those that pour into and pour out for, those that seek first the kingdom, they won't be footnotes. They'll be stepping stones and door holders for somebody else that will come into the kingdom because of them, because of you. So you may feel like you're taking a step back to your will and somebody else's will and the dreams of this world, but you will not be a footnote in the story that God is writing. You will be a stepping stone and a door holder to somebody getting into eternity because of your faithfulness, because of what God has called you to do. And that is the most important thing you can ever set your goals by. So my question and my request is, will you pray for boldness? Will you listen to God's commission over your life? As a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a teacher, as a boss, as a student, as an athlete, aspiring for so much in this world, will you pray for God to make you bold in his kingdom and that you might be sent for him every single day? It may make you a footnote in some days to other people's stories, but you know how it's gonna be done in the end. You know when it's all said and done, the roles will be reversed. The kingdom will come. And like the old poem says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So what will it be for you, for us? We are here today because the first century Christians realized they were sent by God. The future of the church, the future of the kingdom of God, as much as it relies on God's power, it depends on the people of God choosing to be sent for God with the message of God. Will you be bold? Will we be bold and choose Jesus for the sake of our families, for the sake of those around us, for the sake of our own soul? Will you be bold in your lifetime, in your generation? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the boldness of the disciples. Thank you for the boldness of the people that will never even know their name, will never even know their stories. They are literal footnotes. They're even forgotten. They're not even in the story. Thank you for their boldness. Thank you that they chose you. Lord, I know there's somebody here today that they're wrestling with all the different things they've got to do. And Lord, would you speak to them and would you remind them, number one, that you love them, that you have a purpose for them, that you have a plan for them, that you've sent them to their families, you've sent them to their job, you've sent them to their school, to their place, you've sent them and you have a mission for them. And it's up to them to say, God, make me bold to where I choose to put others before you, put Jesus before everything. Lord, would you make us faithful and flexible and fearless? Would you make us bold in the face of all the distractions in this world, the opposition in this world? Would you help us stand up and choose Jesus? Lord, would you give us faith that we might make a difference in this world when it'd be a whole lot easier and convenient to let somebody else do it? Lord, thank you for what the resurrection means to us. And if we've experienced it, may you make us door holders and stepping stones for somebody else to get in through the life that you've called us to live. It are, whether it be our children, our grandchildren, our coworkers, our neighbors, our enemies, somebody that we've been sent to, to love intentionally, to foster and lead, 
to disciple, to direct into your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.